All right, everyone, welcome to New Polity's podcast. Apologies to all that we're not in our fantastic studio, with which you've become so familiar. We are in the unfamiliar office space right over by the printer. And I'm here with Nathan Bird, who is a fantastic guy who's been following New Polity, which is flattering. But besides that, he has another great characteristic, which is a interest, profound interest, it seems to me, in local politics. So, from Chattanooga, here's Nathan. How you doing, Nathan? Doing well, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Chattanooga, I know almost nothing about, but I have heard that it is a site of some great walking and hiking trails. Yeah, yeah, so Chattanooga is kind of become uh, the Denver of the Southeast, I okay. guess. A lot of people have been calling it. You can go two hours. That sounds in like direction. a slur. I don't know. That sounds like a slur. Oh, oh, yeah, I hesitate to like really embrace that label, but it gets the point across that like we are yeah. a great city for outdoor activities. You can go two, two hours in any direction and have world-class rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking, white water rafting, anything that doesn't involve snow, you can do it here. Well, it's awesome. I mean, I've been, the reason I know this is because Steubenville, Ohio, is many things, but a, a hiking natural beauty place, it is not. But there's some <laughs> very um, entrepreneurial spirits who are trying to get a trail. If you've heard of the National Rails to Trail program, they uh-huh. have a potential route that very well could go across our Market Street Bridge, goes across the Ohio River. And so there's a contingent of, of people here who are all working on getting the trail to go right down our downtown. And one of the efforts, one of the cities we're looking at is Chattanooga is a place that sort of um, integrated some of its commercial activities with a hiking outdoor scene. Um, yeah, that was that was part of the renaissance of Chattanooga back in the 90s was yeah. the, uh, the we, we put in an aquarium. At the time, it was the biggest aquarium, I think, on the East Coast. I could be wrong about that. Um, biggest freshwater aquarium. That, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and as part of that, they put in a river walk. And the Riverwalk has since expanded uh, tremendously since then. But that trail, I mean, it's amazing how much economic activity can be based off of just one simple change like that. That's awesome. I know. Yeah. And it seems to us that sometimes it's just a change in imagination, right? So for us, the Ohio River has historically been an industrial river. Um, so even as industry collapsed, or rather as we collapsed it by moving it all to China, um, still we never lost the imagination of it as an industrial site um that's sort of our local problem but here's the deal nathan no one here is interested about chattanooga or steubenville i presume because we want to talk to you about local politics specifically um you run a podcast devoted to local politics what's the name of it chattanooga civics Chattanooga Civics. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Nuga is a hard thing to say before any anything else, actually. <laughs> Nuga and and that's marvelous. Um, and I haven't met anyone that's specifically devoted to local politics besides a kind of local crank who does a radio show around here that seems to just want to stir up fights between locals at like 7 a.m. in the morning. I don't think that's every cool. every town has one of those. <laughs> that is an old an institution, man. Yeah. 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 yeah now, so it's, it's interesting. I have uh, I have not looked very hard for other examples of right. people doing what I'm doing. The only other one that I know of is uh, Lexington yeah. has a 
a bigger organization actually they they have a full-time staff of i think six people which to me is amazing wow. that they've been able wow. to grow it to that point yeah i'm just one guy i do this on the side this is yeah. a hobby yeah um and I mean, so there's lexington a lot of local, there's a lot of local puff pieces right there's a lot of like yeah city magazines that are basically adverts for the tourists tourism yeah, yeah. But no sense of either, either tourism or like trying to pull in companies to come, yeah. you know, move your headquarters here or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's all it's either it's either actual tourism or like economic tourism. Colonize us, baby. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the critiques that New Polity gets generally is that a there seems to be something kind of useless about a focus on local politics. So one of the slurs we get is that we're localists, um, which depending on what you mean by it, we'll agree or not agree that we are, right? But I think some of it comes with this idea that to basically avoid the really high centers of power and influence, both corporate and governmental, and to focus instead on a kind of small scale, immediate presence um, is just, denying the realities of a nation state right so like we're a national economy we have national government we're we're a united states right or at least we are still june 24th we'll see what happens yeah. and so do you see what i'm saying like it, it seems to be this sense of like why not just let the local take care of the local if we're um as catholics as people trying to bring the kingdom of christ into the world why not go directly for the throat, right? Why not go for where the real changes are obviously made and where massive political influence is held? Have you ever run into this or is this uh Yeah, I mean, this is something I, I run into all the time and I could come at this from so many different angles. Um, I guess I'll start with kind of the practical angle of why local government matters. Uh, local government is where our vote has the most immediate effect you know so you see things today as a great example i mean we just had the dobbs case handed down um that is a result of years upon years of supreme court nominations and hearings and all these other things it takes a long time for any of this to come to fruition if it ever does at all whereas at the local level there is still a lot of legwork that has to be done. Things don't happen immediately. But local government has a very immediate effect on things that, that change your life day to day. Like as soon as you walk out your door, you are on a city street. You're walking down. If you're lucky enough to have a sidewalk, it's a sidewalk that the city installed. Uh, your utilities are probably managed by the city or managed by a company who is contracted by the city. Uh, schools, libraries, emergency services, all of those things are controlled by the city. And the one that I focus on, I mean, my background is in civil engineering and, and I love uh, new urbanism yeah. is a big topic that I'm very interested in. And so one of the things that I think is the most important that cities do is land use policy. So you all, you all did uh, Good Soil. It was like a little two-part podcast with a local farming family. Uh, that kind of thing is highly dependent on land use regulations. Oh, 100%. So here in Chattanooga, I can't have chickens in my backyard. Really? Because of zoning regulations. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said about walkability, about spaces for festival, about these things that 
are heavily influenced by our built environment. I mean, you guys have the first Friday festival in Steubenville and you have it right downtown in the middle of the only block in the whole city that actually has tall buildings. And it adds so much character. It adds to a sense of place that this is not just a parking lot that could be any Walmart parking lot in any city in any country. This is downtown Steubenville. However small that is, it it is the character of the city. And all of that is influenced by a local um, land use policies. There's there's a couple of quotes, you know, Churchill said, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And I think that's really important. Our buildings provide these spaces for community building. And the way they interact with the street, the way they interact with each other actually is part of what builds a community. Um, and, And you get into how zoning codes and how local regulations, local government impacts that. There's a meme that's been going around uh, lately. There's a quote that's been pulled and people pull little pictures of like video game cities and uh, different TV shows. And it's this quote that's been spreading around, this kind of smart, walkable, mixed-use urbanism is illegal to build in most American cities. <laughs> and it's become such a meme that it's, it's been imbued with a certain level of irony. Sure. But I see all those memes and there is, in my mind, no irony whatsoever because it is, it is exactly true that downtown Steubenville could not be built today because of how close it is to the street, because of how close the yeah. buildings are together and how they relate to one another. Right. Um, and that's all controlled by local government. So you're wondering, you know, why not go for the throat? Why not go for the big federal power? Well, there is a lot to be said for that. And it's important that people are thinking about that. It's important that we keep an eye on the state level and the federal level and know what's happening and stay involved. But if we don't focus on local power, we're abdicating our responsibility to our own city, to the people who live next door to us. Yeah. And there's, there's a relationship that gets built there. You know, you, you talk to people and you ask them who the president is and almost everybody's going to tell you who the president is. Right. Probably the vice president. Most people might know their senator. Mm-hmm. They get down to, you know, who's your state representative. Uh, you start getting a couple raised eyebrows and then you ask, who's your city councilman? Yeah. And most people will be like, what's that? Right. But... I know my city councilwoman. I have spent, you know, a couple hours talking to her after community association meetings. Uh, You know, I see her at different events throughout the city. I see her walking through the park. I know her Mm -hmm. as a person. We have a real relationship. And, you know, it's not like we're best friends or anything, but we know one another. And that provides a certain level of care that you cannot get at the state or federal level. and it seems to me this is sometimes the, sometimes the, maybe the nascent fear that people have of a focus on local politics is that we want to imagine America as a kind of hierarchy descending from the top down to the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have mm-hmm. this sort of order um, that's kind of enshrined in the constitution and our major institutions of government, and then it trickles down. But what's lower is always sort of a subsidiarity of the, of the higher, right? Like, it's always like, well, the city planning is really the state planning just being uh, implemented at a lower level, right? And the state planning is really the federal planning just being implemented at a lower level. And what, it, what you find, the moment you get involved in local politics is that this just isn't true. 
right? There's some degree of that. There's a very slight degree of that. Like you see it in police forces, for instance, where there's mm -hmm. this clear line of like the representation of the state at a higher level is happening on a local level. Sure, you see that. And people often pull the card of sort of a higher representation, you know, whenever there's a conflict. But when you are speaking with people, when you're making deals, when you're, when you're making arrangements for what to do, when you're deciding on local laws, it's actually not happening as an instantiation of what's higher, but it's actually a fruitful creative creation from below. Mm -hmm. And it's not to deny, it's not like an anarchist position, right? It's just to say that um, I think that when you, when you realize that, you realize that the reason local politics has this sense of like kind of disorder and <laughs> the sense that um, it doesn't have the kind of glamour of state. It doesn't have the, it's government, right? We are governing, but it doesn't have the glamour of government. It doesn't have the institutions. And most people have a sense of like a, a sort of bureaucrat implementation of, of something higher. Um, but when you actually get down to talking with the people uh, who are governing you, and you realize that a conversation can influence a decision about your immediate life, um, then I think you realize that there is a genuine from below governance that would remain regardless if the larger structures of power, uh, crumbled. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important is you're not simply looking at some instance of sort of centralized state planning, right? You're looking at humans governing the world around them. And especially in America, it's very hard for us to like see that and not get really scared. Because if it's true that there's a, a lower level neighborly way of governing the world around us, and that includes governing each other, uh, then we're very responsible, right? For each other. I yeah. Mean, us, right? We <laughs> there's no one going to save us, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If anything That's bad scary. happens, it's our own fault. We, right. we can't blame Joe Biden for, right. you know, totally. the park being covered in trash. Totally. That's terrifying to us. And so, I think sometimes I get the suspicion that the, the ignorance of local politics um, is a defense mechanism uh, against really facing the fact that we're kind of in charge and we're, and we're very much responsible. Um, and, so, and so we sort of pretend like, well, this must simply be Democrats happening at a lower level. This must simply be Republicans happening at, at a lower level. We just want to make it the same thing we see on TV but yeah. man, I've had so many experiences where it's not, right? Where it's like, uh, I just talked to the building inspector and said, hey, give me another week. And he said, yeah. And was that against the law? I don't know. It was certainly <laughs> against the city ordinance, right? But he, yeah. he's the city. And we had a conversation and we understood each other. And then we changed the law for me. Now, maybe that's an, from the perspective of, of sort of making a state law happen on a local level. This is... Uh, a moment of corruption, right? But from the perspective of from below of, hey, we, we are governing each other because we're all involved in a common good together. It's precisely not corruption, it's actually governance. It's like, <laughs> right. So you see how that, I, I just get that sense that maybe that paradox is, is what's driving people away from local politics. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it gets back to, you know, New Polity has been talking a lot about tyranny and tyranny as, you know, particularly being rule for private gain versus rule for the common good. And it's, it's, it's harder to be a tyrant over people that you see at the grocery store. I know, because they can hit you. 
<laughs> exactly. No, Chesterton said that. We need to yeah. keep our politicians close enough to kick them. Yeah, totally. And, oh, and, and I think you know, personally, think I, like to, I like to flip that on its head and say, you know, we also need to keep our politicians close enough that we can go have a drink with them or give them a hug or like, right, right, you know, right. walk through the park. Yeah. But if they're close, there is actual relationship there. There is room to take into account real human circumstances yeah. Yeah. and to make judgments accordingly. And to be, begin to be governed by the virtues. I think that's another thing that local politics, or rather national politics allows is that the political, so not to get too theoretical about this, right? But, but liberalism basically posits the idea that the political is free of judgment from the perspective of virtue, right? Mm -hmm. This is like, um, you can see it in a million ways, but basically the idea that it's this political neutral space that's free of any particular religious orientation besides one that we extrinsically apply to it every now and then. Um, and I think that that becomes very believable when it's entirely impersonal, right? Like, why do I need to be charitable to Biden? There just absolutely seems to be no reason, right? He just becomes, you know, a, a, someone to mock. And in a similar sense, like, why practice any virtues, patience, long suffering, right? Uh, um, honesty, for instance. Why practice any virtues in relation to the national scene? It's, it's hard to even imagine, right? To hold those kinds of, um, those kinds of uh, habits of charity towards my fellow man in national politics mm -hmm. just seems insane. Yeah, because we're only interacting with them through a TV screen or a keyboard or a newspaper. I mean, we virtue, never meet these people. Virtue needs the personal. Yeah, yeah, virtue needs the personal. And so, when you know, and I think because people are on this national scale, sometimes they really fear. Um, it, it it leads them to exit from the language of virtue when it comes to politics and to enter the language of game and competition, right? So you want to win against mm -hmm. your enemies, you don't want to lose to your right. enemies. Whereas when you're on a local level, you can have someone that you really vehemently disagree with and in some strict sense is an enmity with you, right? But precisely because you have to see them, and this is just what you said, like I'm just making it more complicated, I guess, but precisely because you have to see them, <laughs> you, the injunction to love your enemy is not just this strange, absurd, supernatural, like, you know, grimacing that you then love the Democrats or, or the Republicans or whatever. It's that there's a particular person who, who you share goods with. And you know you share goods with, you share streets with, you share trees with, you share air water, space, like you, you, you love your enemies because there's good in them, even if there's only the goods that you share, whether you'd like to or not. <laughs> and so it seems to me like it's not to negate the larger stuff, but it's that local politics seems to be a kind of learning ground where you say, no, 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 the virtues are precisely what make governance happen in a way that serves mm -hmm. flourishing. And there's a reason why um, forgetting it Forgetting that um, leads to the sense that the larger bodies of governance, in fact, are inimical to human flourishing, as I think most politically conscious people seem to take as their presumption, right? Yeah, I mean, the local is where politics becomes personal, and, and that's really the heart of it. And so virtuous, or like at least capable of virtue. Right. And also a little scarier, right? Like, so there's been a lot of, um, because, because there is always the fear of uh, violence and retribution and actual coming to blows. 
which again, like we can, we can be as radical as we want um, against like the leftists, right? Or like against the right wing. Um, you can say all sorts of just horrifying things about them. And, and, um, and I think for people who are alienated from their locality, it tends to create the kind of conspiratorial large system thinking um, where there's really no endpoint to how um, I guess radicalized, right? You might be. Whereas when you're kind of checked by the reality of what's around you, um, it's not that you become less radical; you become more radical because you're being radical with your neighbors and like right. about particular people. Like you're actually forced to reduce things to personal motives, like realizing that people, people in fact run the world. I think is um, a little bit terrifying. But but you've been you've been correct, and I think right? yeah. So I mean, what I do, the biggest issue I see with local government is lack of information. That's the first step uh, that that exists in nearly every city. You see, and and there's a lot of reasons for this. One of which is that you know national media corporations are buying up local news stations and basically extracting as much wealth as they can before they crumple them up and throw them away. Um, and so, in order to do that, they take away from local news coverage and instead run the same story be it state level or national level, the easy to write story that everybody can relate to no matter where they are yeah. is, is the cheapest story. And right. so they run stories about national government, even though it's supposed to be a local news station. And so you see this, this shrinking of knowledge about local government, what it is, what it does and how it operates. Yeah. And so that's the gap that I've tried to step in and fill. So I've been interviewing different local officials about what they do. And I don't claim to know, I mean, I've learned a lot about local government, but I don't claim to be an expert about what any of these people do or about how Chattanooga works at all. What I do is I go to these people who are actually doing the work and I just ask them questions like any layman on the street and just say, break it down for us. If I want to change something about my city, how do I go about doing it? What is the process that we have set up? And if we don't like that process, how do we change it? And most of the people who work in local government are actually super excited to share their knowledge. Yeah. They're in, you know, local government is not a place to be uh, materially successful. Yeah. Uh, and so they're not in it for the money in most yeah. cases. You know, I'm sure you can find, you can cherry pick instances of corruption and, you know, skimming off the top and shady backroom deals. But at the end of the day, most of these people are, are really trying to be good civic servants and they're excited to share their knowledge. And so by drawing that out, by making it accessible, it actually becomes much easier for the average Joe on the street to learn and affect change. Yeah. To actually take the power that they have been given by right and, and exercise it. Uh, so I've been doing those interviews. And then I've also been, this is more recently, starting a newsletter where I break down the city council agenda. Yeah. And I take this really boring legalistic document and I break it down into bullet points and just say, hey, here's what the city council is doing this week. Yeah. And if you think this is important, you need to go email your city representative. Yeah. 
And that's those two things, that, those interviews and that newsletter, that's the core of my project. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, you know, personally, I've been trying to get involved in, in smaller ways. There's a lot of ways to get involved in local government that don't involve running for office, that don't involve actually entering into politics in the more vulgar sense of the word. Sure. Um, so I'm on the board of my local community association. Yeah. We get together every month and we talk about, hey, what are the problems that we're seeing as a neighborhood, a much smaller chunk of our city? And we get together and we bring in our city councilwoman and we say, hey, here's problems that we're having. How can you help us fix it? And change is very slow. It is very frustrating, but it's better than sitting back and doing nothing. So Nathan, let me ask you, if you wanted to get chickens in your backyard at this point in Chattanooga, what would, what would you do? Is it an ordinance against, is there a positive law against chickens? Yes. So there is a law on the Chattanooga, on the books in Chattanooga. When was, do you that, when that was put in place? I'm curious. I want to say it was probably in the 90s. Yeah. It's been on there a for a lot of anti, anti sort of city agricultural things happening in the 90s. A lot of it um, seemed to just be um, based on a certain idea of progress that could only see the lingering uh, agricultural practices of locals as being a hindrance to that. Um, it's funny you mentioned Chesterton because he said the same thing. He, he fought for this in London. There were some laws in um, certain tenements where people were proposing laws that would ban um, keeping chickens within <laughs> the, not the commons, what do they call this? Allotment in, in the allotments <laughs> for the tents, the allotment gardens. Um, and he wrote a great defense of, of keeping chickens, um, which I, I just find funny that you're you know, similar similar scenario yeah. seems like the the princes of, of of order in this world really don't like chickens but i guess <laughs> no i mean it gets back talking about land use i mean we yeah. the whole way we understand land and our connection to it just got completely obliterated after world war ii yeah uh we we went from basically the way that cities i get i mean it, it started a little bit during industrialization but it really took off after World War II, we all decided that each man should be his own ward. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to create the suburbs, which is, you know, every man has his own manor house. Mm -hmm. And if you think about a manor house, like a traditional English manor house, they've got these great, beautiful green lawns. And the reason they have those is to show off the fact I can waste all of this land and have it be unproductive. Yeah. We then took that and we actually codified it and said, no, you can't have productive land. You have to have a green lawn on your, your quarter acre. You have to not have chickens. You can't do that. Um, and there's instances of this, you know, in different cities, it's, it's to greater or lesser degrees of, of leniency. But in Chattanooga, in order to have chickens, you need to either be in an agricultural zone or you need to have at least five acres. Wow. Which in the city limits, that's really a lot of land. No one's got that. Uh, and, and so especially lately, I mean, inflation is, is like eight or 9% right now. And I was reading an article the other day, actually, that eggs are in, they've inflated at 25%. It's, the, it's one of the highest increases of any item on your grocery bill is eggs. And so 
to get back to your question, how would I go about changing yeah. that? It's again, it's a slow, frustrating process. And it, I'm starting kind of easing into it and just nudging my city councilwoman every time I see her. She's probably sick of me by now, but every time I see yeah. her, every time I email her, I'm just like, hey, so when are we getting chickens? Right. Yeah. You know, when are, when are you going to change that law yeah. to say we can have chickens? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, you get to feed them trash and they turn it into eggs. I mean, I know it's, it's I magic. Think, I think people think of it as like a, <laughs> from a grain, like a, feed perspective right like you're you're buying grain but that's only to supplement um ideally you're making enough from your kitchen scraps that you're just you know turning banana peels and, and such into into eggs yeah. um and it does seem i think you're dead i think you're dead on that the idea of right there's so many influences here right but the idea that productive property in the literal sense of like productive land um, only occurs at a level of scale, like a, like a high level of scale is, um, I mean, you don't want to get conspiratorial about it, right? But it's just obvious that like, if everyone had a chicken, that would mean a lot of very large sort of chicken feedlots would be out of business. Yeah. And so I do think that there's a certain, if not direct lobbying problem, certain, well, I wouldn't be surprised if there's direct lobbying, um, but if not just that, also a sort of cultural, um, what's the word, uh, compartmentalization of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, call it capitalism, call it modernity, but from the beginning, it's always been involved in creating greater efficiency by splitting up tasks, right? And it seems like, like we apply that a lot in our urban planning, right? Like that there's agricultural zones, right? And there's commercial <laughs> zones, there's industrial zones. The idea that a human life could be both industrious, commercial, agricultural, and residential, like doesn't even occur to us because we're so used to the factory line, which splits everything up for greater efficiency that we essentially look at our city and do the same, and do the same thing. <laughs> and it seems to me that a lot of what Catholics need to be doing in local politics is, um, asserting more radically that it, it is not um cities are not simply centrally planned but rather the central plans come from a recognition of the customary and normal behaviors of people who are living together in the first place right like if people are keeping chickens exactly. let them keep chickens <laughs> but obviously we're working and you, you see that in in the places that people love to vacation mm. You go to old towns in Europe with these yeah. narrow winding streets and you fawn over how beautiful it is and you know how everybody has their nice little corner cafe and then you come home and right. you say, if anybody takes away my parking spot, I'm going to riot. <laughs> and it's just like, you can't have both. We, right. could have, we could have those beautiful European towns. It, it would take a lot of time. It takes a long time to build a town like that, but we could have that. But you have to make sacrifices for that end. And you have to become comfortable with the fact that you are living in community with other people. I mean, so much of suburbanization is the same problem that you're getting at, uh, talking about state and national government, where it, it gets back to the, the central tenet of liberalism. Like, we are all in competition with one another. And that leads to a lot of viciousness. Yeah. Whereas if you recognize the fact that I am connected to my neighbor, 
and I'm connected to the person down the street and we can all work together or not to build a town where we are all better off. And if that means I have to smell my neighbor's chickens, so be it. That means I might be able to go knock on their door and say, hey, your chickens kind of smell, but could I have some fresh eggs? Right, right. And we'll call it even. And we'll plant a hedge. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it seems like we don't recognize the sacrifices we're already making that are just normal, right? Like we're all smelling each other's cars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's similar in Steubenville. Um, parking is king because, but it's really interesting, right? Steubenville experienced a, you know, a rapid um, post-industrial decline um, after the great sellout to China that we had involved ourselves in for a while. Um, and one of the consequences of this is that you can basically presume that your downtown was deserted and that you could park right next to wherever you were going to go. Now that um, like a, lot of, um, a lot of work, a lot of revitalization effort, this is no longer the case, um, it's sort of a drama, right? One thing that I like to do though, speaking of land use, is I measured out um, the, the number of feet, I forget the number, but the number of feet that it takes to go from the end of a Walmart parking lot into the supermarket section over by the milk in the, in the super Walmart. <laughs> and it's longer than a city block. Right? I'm sure a Walmart with a parking lot is probably four times the size of Steubenville's downtown. Totally it is. And so people, it's this, this thing of perspective, like I cannot possibly imagine parking one block over and then walking into a pedestrian zone, right? So this makes the pedestrian thing like evil and abnormal. When you're walking three times as far to get from your car to a market. And I don't think it's just an idle comparison, right? Because what is Walmart? Walmart is literally the buying up of many different local families um, and doing their jobs for them so that they have to move. That's what a Walmart is, right? So you go into Walmart and you have your mechanic and you have your grocer and you have your butcher and you have, you know, your your several boutiques, right? Mm -hmm. Have your corner store, it's all there, yep. right? So you're quite literally talking about the subtraction of all those things from your downtown, moving them all into a place, which is why it's bigger than your downtown. <laughs> Only that, what's the difference? Well, the difference is it's owned by the Walton family. And so with a kind of, um, with a kind of concentration of capital and then a subsequent subtraction of, of families um, who, who own um, businesses, houses, um, space. Um, you have a kind of weird inverse downtown in the Walmart. Like the Walmart mm -hmm. isn't just like your downtown, it took your downtown, right? Yeah. Um, in a similar way how Amazon isn't, Amazon isn't your, it's odd because Amazon isn't your failing mall. It, it is the thing that made your mall fail. It is the mall. Like, <laughs> which is funny because I end up defending malls because I hate Amazon worse. But it's like, well, no, it's just the super mall. Um, well, well, the mall is actually a great example because the mall is the walkable downtown that we used to have. But then we enclosed it, air conditioned it, and surrounded it by more parking than you could ever use. Yeah, parking. Instead of, just, instead of just having it downtown and having your house two blocks away yeah. and you can walk there. Yep. And, and you start to think about this too because this gets into ideas of you know, distributism almost. Probably. Where if you have a small corner store, and this gets into aesthetics, which some people like, get kind of bristly when you start talking about aesthetics as something that's important. Yeah. Um, but, but distributing aesthetics, 
I, I know. Yeah, I've heard you talk enough that I know that this is not uh, controversial among us. But you, you start to talk about having a corner store that's owned by one man, and you have a brewery owned by another man, and you have a grocer owned by a woman, and you've got like this this vast microcosm of an economy and every person owns that little microcosm yeah but they are connected to it in a deep personal way and most people want to live and work in a beautiful place and they will put money into it so that it becomes so right they will make sure that their front porch is beautiful because they walk into it every day They'll make sure that the streets, if they have control over the streets, they'll put giant trees in the streets to make sure that they have shade. And you start to see this blossoming of a place that's not only economically vibrant, but also beautiful. Yep. And you start, that makes walking then so much more attractive because now I'm not walking past a Walmart parking lot and I see a Nissan Altima and a Honda Accord and a Ford F-150 and boom, I'm at the front door. Now you're walking past the labor of love yeah. of a whole town yeah. and it, it's beautiful. And what happened was these companies came in and it's hard to say which one came first, but the whole point of Walmart, like you said, it's to extract wealth. They come in, they plop down a building that's not meant to last more than 30 years before it falls down. They pave whatever they can, put in parking, they extract as much wealth as they can, and then the building falls down, and sometimes they build another one next door, and sometimes they just leave. And we have written our zoning codes yeah. to accommodate that. Yes. Not just to allow it, but to accommodate it and to a certain sense enforce it. Yep. And in order to unwind that, to bring this back to where we started, the only way to unwind that really is at the local level. You have to talk to your city councilman or your alderman or whatever they call it in your town and say, hey, I don't like the fact that if I wanted to go build my own business, I have to build it in this little strip mall style building set back from a 35 mile per hour street that people are going to fly by probably at 50. No one's going to take a second look. It looks like it's made out of cardboard and you know, it'll be, it'll be awful. I want to build a place that is beautiful and I want you to change the laws to allow it to be beautiful. And if they say no, go run for office and change it yourself. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're dead right. And I think that um, that accommodation given to corporations is, I mean, it, it frankly has destroyed the world. I mean, it's not that our world anyways, it's not that we don't have the capacity for resistance. It's that we are inheriting a decision not to resist um, the kind of strip mauling of America mm -hmm. and, and the priority of the automobile over the human person. Um, which seems to characterize most of American life. But, but at the same time, um, I want to know how you avoid that when you're busy revitalizing the city, right? Because it seems to me that what happens is something like this. In the first stages of revitalization, um, and I'm saying this like it's a program. It's not a program, right? It's just something people do because people want to be happy. So yeah. it's not like I implement the revitalization plan. It's like, 
No, like insofar as just people pursuing a common good, things that are dead come to life. That's awesome. And, and there's a certain degree where that happens under the radar, right? Like things are getting a little better, getting a few more businesses. Um, you're making some creative decisions about, you know, for us blocking certain streets, certain festivals, um, kind of leaning hard into gardening and, and things like this. Um, okay, life's getting a little better, a little better, but there's this limit point where that becomes profitable, where it becomes an extractable wealth. It becomes a tourism like, economy. Yeah, I mean, either tourism co economy or just literally you start to ping up on the algorithms, right? Because if, if we increase the population of a neighborhood because people want to be a part of a certain movement and they're fixing old buildings and they're fixing old houses that have been you know, empty for 20 years or whatever, um, eventually you become a viable place for a subway. And then you work a little harder and you become a viable place for a Chipotle. And you work really, really hard and you become a viable place for um, whatever's better than Chipotle <laughs> in terms of the you know, scale of, a, of, of these places. But then once that happens, it's like everything turns back on its head because these companies that ultimately want to be, know that if they're in beautiful places that they can make money, if they're in populated places they can make money, if they can be in pedestrian places that they can make money, they can be in places with a cultural scene, kind of festival, musical scene, then they can make money. Once they, once they come in there, um, they bring with them an ethos that is uh, antithetical to the human desire for flourishing that, that preceded it, right? So they, yeah. by the necessities of national organization, need parking, need space for truck entrance. Truck entrance is, is just massive for some of these places. Yeah. Um, need a drive through need, you know what I'm saying? Like they, they, and they need to destroy competition by definition. So it's like, it's almost like we want to revitalize here in Steubenville, Ohio, but not too much, you know? Lord, make me re yeah, revitalize, well, but not yet. <laughs> so there's a couple ways to, to combat that just off the top of my head. Yeah. The first is, is relational. Yeah. And the idea that, okay, we have a burrito shop already. You know, I, I live in a neighborhood, we've got a, a truck that comes by every Tuesday and they have Taco Tuesday out of their food truck. Awesome. And everybody loves it. And if a Chipotle came in, we would all have to work together and actually make a conscious effort to not buy our burritos from Chipotle, but continue yeah. to buy from the burrito truck that comes every week because they're a part of our community right. and we want to see them thrive. We don't want to see Chipotle come in, extract as much wealth as they can, and then leave for the next it city right. as soon as we become unprofitable. Right. And I think uh, so they, what, what these corporations do is they, um, they take our people, right? So like yeah. the franchise model, uh, the manager model is that, the thing that tastes like ownership but doesn't feel like ownership is managing <laughs> your own franchise, right? Um, yeah. Owner. Um, you're a, no, you're not. You're a, you're a higher paid employee. Um, but the, they lean on this because they makes it feel like it's local, right? Like, right. But you don't, and you don't look at what matters sometimes. You're like, oh, my, my guy manages the Burger King. It's like, right, but the profits go, go out of the city. Right, like he, he doesn't make enough of that Burger King job to then have his own productive property, right? He right. The, the point is that well, in the way friend, the way franchise fees work, it's even more insidious. It's not that the profits 
leave the city is that they pay a fan franchise fee every month that is constant, no matter how well or poorly the restaurant's doing. So this, this poor franchise owner could be going under. He could be cutting his own salary in half, but he has to pay that franchise fee no matter what. I didn't know that. Uh, is that true of like pretty much all of them? I, I don't know the, the particulars, but I know that's a common model. It's wow. just a flat fee. And you just say, hey, this is the franchise fee. This is what you pay us to use our name, our recipes, and our supply chains. And Europe, it's up to you to manage. You can pay your employees however much or however little you want in the confines of your economy wow. uh, or your legal system. And, and we're going to take your money and yep. give you this name. Right. And that's, that's all you get. Wow. Um, I forget where I was going with this. So, so I mean, there's the ra relational aspect of just banding together and saying, hey, if anybody is tempted to this false ownership, yep. or if anybody is tempted to this job, yep. we need to work together to find a more desirable option. Sure. We need to actually work together to, to work not just for profit, but for the common good. I mean, this goes back to the stuff you guys talked about in the Good Money series of just like profit cannot be the primary motive. It has to be the common good. And if you make profit following the common good, that's great. Then you can build more common good. Right. Yeah. But if you're chasing profit, you're immediately going to go to that franchise model because it's the quickest way to get into the black. Yeah. Yeah. Seems so there's, like there's... So I was gonna say, it just seems like Catholics can make a lot of good use out of the nonprofit model, um, precisely because the nonprofit as a legal entity is weird from the perspective of American politics because it's actually just by law doing what you're supposed to do with profits, <laughs> right? Because the point is not that you don't make money, right? That's right. not what a nonprofit is. A nonprofit is just an institution that puts all of the money it makes back into what it does. And that can include salary, that can include you know, so you can work for a nonprofit and make enough money to, to you know, feed your family and have a home and all that. But you think about that, you know, we're like, okay, this is this distinct thing as opposed to the normal thing. It's like, no, no, no. Catholics should just run institutions as nonprofits. And we're able to because you can do anything as a nonprofit, right? You can do a restaurant. You can do, all you, ha all you have to do is say, hey, this is for the town. This is for these people. This is for this underprivileged population, whatever, whatever whoever you're serving, just name it, become a nonprofit, a prominent, and just make sure that every penny goes back to the work. And by mm -hmm. doing this, you're not like depriving yourself. You're actually just doing what the Christian tradition has timelessly taught, which is that right. no man should have more money than he needs for his um, vocation, for his office. That's just enshrined in law in a weird way in America. But it's like, I, I do find that Catholics should take advantage of that. Like, why not just have a nonprofit bagel store. All you're saying is that my bagel store will remain local. I will not sell out. Mm -hmm. Just putting a legal promise on that at the beginning. I know there's more to it than that, right? You're not paying taxes, I guess. But that's that's yeah. Right. And there's a lot of paperwork that comes with that and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it sounds worth it. You know. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> there's that aspect to avoid that. Being a victim of your own success is essentially yeah. the problem we're trying to deal with here. Yeah. And this is a problem that I've seen in person, both here in Chattanooga, and I also, I spent some time in Nashville, and Nashville is like the biggest boom town in the city mm. for the past decade. Yeah. Um, and you see that. You see this kind of vibrant, local, kind of weird, crunchy economy based mostly around music and a, a bunch of hipsters. 
has now been commodified and is being sold uh, wholesale to the highest bidder. And that's starting to come to Chattanooga as well. So you can, you can use relationship to combat that phenomenon. You can also actually turn the very zoning codes that we bent over backwards to accommodate these extractive businesses, you can turn around and use those to build community. So you can ban drive-throughs. You can uh, ensure a certain form of city building where it is not attractive for McDonald's to plop down their standard block building. Yeah. And if they want to come to your town, if they deem it worthy right. to bend over backwards to come to your city because it is so attractive to them, they can build on your terms. Totally. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to bend over backwards for them. Make them bend over backwards for your oh, town. And, 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 and you they, see, they, this has been done. Yeah, you see it. I, mean, I see it in Europe all the time. It's hilarious sometimes walking through Oxford that I would walk past like three Kentucky Fried Chickens. Um, that has some <laughs> problem. But one thing that England got right uh, in that drastic mistake was they didn't. You know, I mean, granted, this is Oxford, right? So it's, it's one of the most historically regulated cities in the world, I'm sure. Um, but, I mean, these are Kentucky Fried Chickens that have to build within the existing architecture. Um, now, Oxford, even then, had its own kind of mall situation that, that is really horrible. Um, <laughs> but within the historic downtown, it's like... Um, yeah, I mean, you would never expect to see what essentially looked like somewhere Shakespeare grew up be kind of inhabited by a Kentucky Fried Chicken. But it was not, to the, besides the garish signs, it was not detrimental to the actual architecture of the street. Right. And I think so, yeah. So obviously it can be done. I mean, Europeans are better at this because they have, I think, more of a disdain for, still a lingering disdain for the kind of uh, American habit of raising everything to the ground and, and building <laughs> Whether that will last for another 20 years, who knows? Um, but that's, is, that's a funny awful. phenomenon because that's just as much a product of the fact that after World War II, Americans had a ton of money and Europeans didn't. Yeah. And Americans used that money to burn our own cities to the ground and build highways. Whereas the Europeans just had to make do with what they had because they didn't have any money to build highways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like, Nathan, uh, the, um, um, the conversation we're not having, which maybe we should have another conversation for, is about cars. <laughs> I am very much down to have that conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll rail against cars all day if you want me to. <laughs> well, I do, but, before, but not for this one. Uh, not for this one. No, that's a whole tell, other... So tell, me, so tell me then, tell me how this fits with your Catholic faith, which is a very boomer question, right? Because <laughs> not like Catholic faith is this sort of box within your within your soul that things are sort of inserted into with relative success. I, I get that yeah. it's the whole of us. Um, but it is a question of of form here. What what does local politics do for the church and what does the church do for local politics in your life? Yeah, so We've been dancing around a lot of this, but what it boils down to, what attracted me to this project in the first place was subsidiarity. And subsidiarity 
for a long time for me was almost a completely theoretical idea. And so I'll start with the definition that I like. I don't know where this originated. I just found it on Wikipedia. So I have no idea like where it came from, but I really like this definition. Matters ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, or least centralized competent authority. And I love this definition of subsidiarity because what it recognizes is that we cannot be like libertarians who think everything devolves down to the individual level. And we can't be uh, authoritarians who think everything proceeds from the top down. It has to be a matter of determining what is the smallest competent authority. And so you start with the family. The family is the building block of society. Is the family competent to plan a road? Probably not. That's something that has to take into account the needs of the rest of the community. Is a family competent to organize national defense? Probably not. They can be a part of it, of course. But as far as organizing it, that takes a higher level of authority and and managership, I guess, to say this is where the people need to go to do the thing. So I see this and I see this idea of subsidiarity and I, I, I start thinking about it and I know lots of people who will use subsidiarity as a buzzword in their conversations about how we should live our lives and organize our government. But what I see actually happening is among Catholics mostly is that they'll recognize that the family is the building block of society. That's a given in almost any Orthodox Catholic community. And then people will also then recognize that the parish is the next proper organizational principle. After that though, you ask any Catholic, what do we do then? What do we do for big for the parish? And in most cases, they'll jump to the state or federal government to say, this is the problem. We need to go fix it. We need to vote for the right party to make sure that our problems get fixed here in Chattanooga. We need to vote Republican on the next ballot for president. And and there's just this huge disconnect. It's this massive, massive chasm between the parish and the national government that needs to be filled in. And the next proper you know, if we're talking in Catholic terms, the next proper organizational principle would be the diocese, but the diocese so often corresponds to a city, yeah. a city, a, a polis, you know, the place where people come together to build up common virtue. If you go back to Aristotle, like that is the purpose of the city. Because at an organizational principle beyond that, now you're no longer physically connected. And so I started thinking about how can I actually embody subsidiarity? And it, is, it was very clear that there was a big gap in local knowledge of civics yeah. that needed to be filled. Right. And so I just started there. I mean, it, it's not my podcast, and my newsletter there. If you listen or read to them, unless you're reading the same books and pulling from the same resources that I am, and unless you're listening to New Polity, you might... You might pick up on things that I say and the way I word questions that thinks that guy might be Catholic. Yeah. But the way I frame it is that this is for the whole city. This is a project that I'm undertaking for the common good, not just of the church, but of everyone to bring everyone together into a place where we can work for the common good. 
Yeah, no, I find that it's very liberating to have that understanding of subsidiarity because often we get into this crisis where we recognize that genuine goods are pursuable as a parish, but then we we're totally stuck on how, um, I mean, this is phrase is just the problem of being a Catholic in the world, right? Like, okay, so that's the Catholic part. How do we get to the world part? But what I love about the sort of, uh, I don't know, call it like the post-liberal sort of area of thinking is that the pursuit of the good is always Catholic, right? It's, it's always for the whole the universal and it's always in, it's precisely the object of Christ's redemption, right? And so when we look towards the city, it's not looking towards this like mute fact of secular space that we need to like go be Catholic towards in some ways, right? It's, it's the presumption that at larger levels, the families that make up the parishes also make up the city. Mm-hmm. That even the people who reject the Catholic church um, in this or that way, Nevertheless, because God has never abandoned anyone and because human nature is good, are pursuing precisely those goods that the church presumes in the fullness of her consciousness, right? Like, like we, the church pres- pursues the peace of Christ, and this is what it wants to bring to the world. But the idea that the city is not also pursuing the peace is, of course, absurd. So it's right. not, it's been very liberating for me because you get over this, this massive pessimism of like, this gap. And and I think it's precisely the same pessimism that makes you skip right over to the national, right? Because it's like, um, all the Catholic can think of is sort of national policy recommendations. Um, but where there's this acknowledgement that, that the church pursues goods in a world pursuing goods, um, that the world (laughs) pursues goods in a church pursuing goods in some ways. Um, and that there's this, there's this, um, sort of pulling of the world into the church that's constant and that's present in the city, however it's formed. Uh, I think that that was very hopeful for me and it gets rid of this idea that you basically have to sell out in order to be a Catholic um, Mm -hmm. within a liberal state. And that's been good. Yeah. And I think it's helpful too for Catholics to recognize the good of a city. I think there's been a huge backlash against cities. I mean, you know, this is in some ways as old as, uh, I can't remember the first city, I guess, I guess Babel. Yeah, I was going to say like maybe the Desert Fathers first Catholics, but yeah. You know, I mean, distrust of cities goes back a long way. But if you look at the eschaton, I mean, wh- how, how, is, how is heaven described? It's yeah. the New Jerusalem. Yeah. It's a city with streets paved in gold. It's not a place where each man is his own Lord living in his own castle. It is a city where people are working and living together for the common good and for the worship of God. Totally. And cars are only fixed when they need to be. (laughs) (laughs) And if, if a Catholic doesn't recognize, uh, I I see this as kind of a a warping and a, a corruption of like the Benedict option of this idea. We need to retreat into our own little enclaves And for some people, some people will have a calling to go live on a homestead and and build an agricultural life. And that is a legitimate and beautiful calling. But you cannot do that and still live in and take advantage of the goods of a city. If you're going to be in and of a city, you need to be working for the common good, not just of your own family and not just of your own parish, but for the city. Yeah. 
it's a it's a responsibility just as much as it is a privilege yeah yeah i think it it benefits us because then in living for a city it gives meaning and purpose to our families this is something that we talk about a lot in steubenville um we're not raising families for the state which is how i think most people think of it they don't think of it but if they did think about it they would realize that because they don't have we're raising godly men for our country right exactly like because yeah. they don't have good in the city you have this natural idea that well then i'm raising a child precisely for the good of their personal fulfillment within a nation however that right. whatever that looks whatever they choose to do wherever it is a totally fluid um, sort of placeless um, model but once you have the good of the city as precisely your good then you're able to look at children and say, you belong here. And this is no longer kind of helicopter parenting, like I want you to stay within the family. It's just that the family is understood as bearing children and raising them up in virtue for the city, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that you're both saying, I want you to go on, I want, you are for something greater, you're for something larger, you're for, there's a place for you out there. And at the same time, the family is still included within that whole. So you're able to say, yeah, go forth and stay and kind of just inhale and exhale with your children. Whereas in most contemporary American parenting, it's simply telling children to leave because there's no perspective that the city is a good for them that also transcends them. Um, the, the nation just becomes the transcendent out there that we're only quasi involved with, with as mm -hmm. virtual spectators, basically. Um, and that's, I mean, really liberating. I mean, I find very liberating, right? because it, it allows you to love your children and see that love of your children as a both an end in itself and a means of loving the city and then so loving the world as a whole, right? Right. I mean, we only can love these, like truly love these institutions in the same way that a family yeah. loves. You love your family because by God's providence, you were born into that family. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's Most of us don't pick our family, it's given to us. <laughs> And it's the same as you get higher and higher, you have a certain level of choice about what associations you make. But at the end of the day, to truly, to truly breathe in the gifts that God has given, you have to pick, you have to make a choice. You can't constantly be searching for the best apple at the supermarket yeah, yeah. and going over every one for every bruise. And if you do that until the end of time, they're all going to rot. <laughs> you know, you have to pick one and you have to eat it. <laughs> if you want to enjoy it, it starts with, with picking something and committing to it. And our families were born into, our neighborhoods are a little bit more malleable and our cities are a little bit more malleable and we can pick and choose and, and find a place that fits us and fits our vision. But if we're constantly bouncing around from place to place, yeah you're never really going to find any sort of stability. You're not going to have the roots to truly bring forth the fruit that we're, yeah. we're called to bring forth. That's true. Well, Nathan, I'm glad you're bringing, bringing fruit forth in Chattanooga. Um, I'm going to call it here for us. But if anyone yeah, wants if to I could, you, yeah, go ahead. Real briefly, I just want to give like some practical bullet points yes. of how somebody could yes. start a project Great. like this. Great. You listen to this. Can, how do I get involved in local politics? How do I, do I have to run so, and, and become a city councilman? 
Oh, no, well. that is that is a calling for a few. Uh, that is not a universal calling. That's a particular calling. So it starts with what we were just talking about. Pick a place. Yeah. Commit to a place. Even if you know you're only going to be there, say you're in college and you know you're only going to be there for a handful of years, still engage with that place. Be part of it. And maybe you'll end up living. Maybe you'll end up staying there for a long time. But it starts with picking a place and saying, I am a member. I am a citizen of Chattanooga. I'm a citizen of Steubenville. And I take pride in that fact. That's where it starts. Next, you have to build relationships. You have to build relationships with your neighbors. You have to build relationships with your broader neighborhood and, and beyond. So go to your community association. Go to your neighborhood association. If you don't have one, create one. And this is not a political action. This is literally just people getting together and saying, how can we serve each other in the common good? Next, you need someone. It doesn't have to be each individual person. This is when we start getting away from the universal direction to the more particular direction. Find someone who is willing to take on the burden of understanding local government, understanding the system as it is, and distributing that information. And if anybody really wants help with this, because this is what I do, this is what I've discerned as my calling for this time, if anybody wants help with this, you can email me at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. And I can help you kind of figure out the legalese of your city charter or whatever organizational document you have, kind of understand the broad overview. And then you have to take that and go take it to your friends and say, hey, if you care about this issue, you need to talk to this person. Right. Bring people together, form those connections. Beyond that, you can actually volunteer with city government. Most cities and counties have a system of boards and commissions and things that are not elected, they're appointed. So talk to your representative, whether that's your city councilman or your alderman or your mayor, or whoever that might be, who you should have a relationship. You know, know them, know their name and have them know your name and know what they care about. And then volunteer and say, hey, I heard there's an opening on the planning commission or on the Public Arts Commission, or whatever commission your city has, and say, I'd like to volunteer. I'd like to get to know this aspect of city government and provide recommendations on how we should build up the common good in this way. Then, the very particular calling to run for office. That's, that's the last one. I mean, that is not for everybody. It's a, it's a huge time commitment in most cities. And it's not something to be taken lightly. But the great thing is that you do not need to run for office to exercise power at the local level. It all starts with relationship. That's right. Yeah. Wow, that's great. All right, Nathan, thank you. That's thank you. Good. You get you give people just what they need to get started. And I think there's a certain opacity to local politics, um, precisely because no one's filming it. Um, <laughs> that little list there really helps um, to penetrate. And I think the, the idea of a neighborhood association is really important because the first, you know, what makes things political is representation, right? Mm -hmm. Like the act of representing, of being both yourself, but then by being yourself, um, being other people as well. I mean, it's a fascinating thing that human beings can do and it's the source of all authorities that I can stand forth and say, as a member of this, uh, and because of that, I mean, that is entrance into the political proper, right? And you're right, that is, but what's funny about that is that moment of entering into the political proper is not entering into the political sort of uh, legal, right? Which is to say that right. 
there's no type of organization in particular that you have to have. It's simply the fact of representing more than yourself that allows you to enter within that. And that's precisely how it should be because that's what justice is concerned with, right? With what to do for others. And so it can be as simple as, I mean, something we've seen here in Steubenville, it's, it can be simple as taking representation of a particular neglected place within your town. Um, in Steubenville, we've done this with, with Beatty Park, not, not my group of friends in particular, although we've uh, started doing Shakespeare plays there. Um, it was a, a neglected park that someone just took up, started a, a nonprofit ultimately, but even before she was doing a nonprofit to represent the park, she was simply representing the park. Um, and this made her a political actor. And she was right yeah. at the city council and it didn't matter that no one had elected her or that she, her position didn't have a name. Um, the sheer fact of representing enters you into the political. And I think mm -hmm. that um, it's also, to just give one more benefit to doing this, is that a lot of times at New Polity we get these questions and emails and such about how do I start community? Like I hear what you're saying, I agree, but I'm agreeing as a, essentially an atomized individual agreeing with you theoretically in fact, my life doesn't involve others, so how do I practice this, right? Yeah. And I think people get this misconstrued notion that the way to get a community or to get involved with others is to somehow, like, go out and start, you know, making friends in some sort of vague way and then deciding with your friends that you agree on something. I think what we found in student mode is precisely the opposite. Just go find something wrong. This is the greatest way to develop a community, find something wrong um, and then say that you want to fix it and then do begin to fix it. And what people want more than pleasure, more than a life of, 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 you know, individual satisfaction even is purpose is meaningful existence. And there's no better way to just give them a taste of what meaningful existence can be like than problem solving. And this sounds lame in some ways right but I, I do think it's true just go fit, find a problem find a street find a pothole find a park find a, a neighborhood where rents are going up and it's displacing people like figure out the problem develop an association and represent the people affected right um, yeah. or the place affected and then the community builds off of that because suddenly you're having meetings suddenly you're getting together okay now we're enjoying these meetings why don't we do dinner beforehand we might as well we got to eat why don't we have some drinks Okay, now you're in a process where you're developing personal relationships, you're developing the opportunity for virtue, and you're developing the opportunity for evangelization, right? Why do you yeah, care so much? Well, absolutely. I care so much because um, I think that everyone deserves a place that's beautiful where they can pray and where they can contemplate. Okay, so now you're having deeper conversations with these, with these people who at first are just motivated by this glimpse that life can be better. Now you're developing the more solid relationships where you're actually motivated by the interpersonal um, relationships themselves. Yeah, um, I mean, it goes back, you guys had a great conversation, uh, why I converted from the alt-right, that episode uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and you talked about like the limits of tolerance. Mm. And the idea that tolerance can't be understood as this kind of abstract practice. Yeah. Tolerance only exists and only flourishes insofar as people are striving for a common good. And that common good can be as simple as cleaning up the park. Totally. And totally. in so far as you are all focused on cleaning up the park, now you can tolerate one another's differences and speak 
in a civilized fashion yeah. about those differences yeah. because when it comes to the good that you're pursuing in that moment, it doesn't matter that you disagree. It doesn't matter that somebody votes red and somebody votes blue. All you care about right then is cleaning up the park. Right, right, right. Yeah, and the great lie of liberalism is to say that we can have the tolerance and take away the good, right? So like we're gonna unite nations of people. What's the good? I don't know, whatever you wanna do. And somehow we're also gonna tolerate each other. It's like, yeah. no, no, no. The source, the origin of tolerance, the po very possibility of tolerance is on naming the good. Saying this is who we are, this is what we are about. Um, so. And then you can go higher and deeper and you know, whatever other adjective you want to use in a very C.S. Lewis manner <laughs> yeah. to yeah. You know, move from cleaning up the park and just move on up the ladder to the ultimate good, yeah. the glory of God. It's beautiful. All right, Nathan, I hope this inspires some people to get into local politics. Uh, one more time on where they can reach you. Chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. Okay, and you know where we are, New Polity. We hope you keep reading. I'm sure we'll be talking to Nathan again in the future. I hope you guys are all having a great day. God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye.